What's up, everybody? Welcome to March and yet another edition of the Surf and Sales Podcast. I'm Scott Least, co-host of the Surf and Sales Podcast, here with my good friend and partner, Richard Harris. And we are brought to you today by Salesforce Revenue Cloud, gong.io, and lead411.com. We've been working with these folks for quite a while now. They're great partners, and they help make all these Surf and Sales podcasts and the Bonfire Sessions come true. We appreciate their support, so check them out. Uh, we are here today with, I don't even know where to begin. My brother is the first person to work with this guest of ours years ago at a company called Stack Mob. I think we're talking 2010, maybe. So we're talking over a decade ago. Um, and that's where I first made his acquaintance, didn't really know each other that well, but my brother had, had good things to say. And now, uh, after a couple entrepreneurial adventures, Puyon Salehi got it sort of right. Yeah. Uh, CEO and co-founder of Scratchpad is here, and uh, we're really excited to talk to him about the future of sales and, uh, and learn a little bit more about what you're up to. So Puyon, good to see you, man. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to, great to see you and, and Richard as well. Right on, right on. So tell everybody uh, who doesn't know mm -hmm. what the heck Scratchpad is and, and does and, and what kind of, what is the sales process, you know, like? Yeah. So the best way we found to describe Scratchpad is what we're saying is a workspace for the salesperson or the workspace for the revenue team. And what we mean by that is if you look at how most AEs work today, you know, everyone has Salesforce and they'll have an email tool or a phone tool, but where they actually do their work is either an Evernote or Mac notes, manage pipe in some sort of spreadsheet like Google Sheets or Excel. Tasks are, you know, calendar events to do, you know, Wonderlist, to do is Asana, Post-it notes, you name it. And that collectively is what we call the workspace. And it's exists in almost every sales team we've seen in every, any salesperson. And so instead of using these general purpose tools, what, what we did is we, we rebuilt all of those from scratch, but purely designed for the needs of an account executive or a salesperson. And so honestly, I, I, I you know, I might be trivializing what we do here. I wouldn't say it's anything magical or anything new. It's the same thing that most reps are doing today, but it's just a heck of a lot faster. It's a heck of a lot easier. And the ultimate impact of that is it cuts off, you know, most reps will probably resonate with this, you know, blocking off time on your calendar yeah. just to update Salesforce. So, what, so yeah. what pain does this solve, right? Like you talked about these yeah. event things. Like for me, I, I care less about what you do. I care about what pain you solve for people. Yeah. So, you know, listen, in, in a way it's, if you look at most professions or most crafts, they have a workspace that's optimized for them. You look at a woodworker, you may have a shop, you have a, a chef, you've got a kitchen that's optimized for that. You look at the world of a salesperson, the pain it solves for them is you have all of this work that you need to do to hit your quota. And then on top of that, there's all this work that you need to do to show the work that you did to hit the quota. And so that's what we saw. What do you was mean, we, when you say that you got to show all the work again, I'm trying to get to sure. case. I'm trying to like, Okay, Richard, let's get to the most for this company. Here's, yeah. here's what you're struggling with. Okay, let's get to the most basic and I would say common use case is updating next steps. Like okay. it, that's something that we've seen in almost every organization as a, as a rep. You know, how often is your manager asking you to please update next steps, please update Salesforce? The, you know, forget everything else, just update next steps so I can see and I can maybe help coach a little bit. 
But just that little act of updating next steps adds so much additional work to the rep because the tools that they have to use in Salesforce is, you know, I think a lot of people um, crap on Salesforce. I just think it's misunderstood. I think it's actually an exceptionally powerful tool, but as a database, not as a place to do work in. So yeah, that's a big Richard, warehouse that one piece for right sure. There. It's a huge exactly. warehouse. Yeah, but that one little piece is just updating next steps, right? And how long does that take for rep today to do it? It's abnormally long. And so what Scratchpad solves is, again, there's a lot more that it does, but just to make it super simple, let's say it would cut down the, the hours that are required to update all of your next steps, all the up, up next steps on your opportunities from call it an hour or two per week down to like five minutes or 10 minutes at most. Yeah. Now you can extrapolate that to everything else, like your medic fields, med pick fields, you know, uh, close dates, amounts, every other thing you need to update for, for your manager and the, for, the, for the organization. You're, you're recapturing time, not just from your sellers, but also from the sales leadership team. And yeah. you're getting more accurate data, more enriched data, because you're finding ways to get reps to do these things in a shorter amount of time. So therefore they're, they're more than willing to do it. If it's going to take me 50 minutes to do this, I'm going to say, fuck it half the time and just not do it. Yes. And that happens all the time on sales floors. But if you make it easy for me, ah, no, no worries. I'll do that. Now all of a sudden I have more enriched and better accuracy in terms of the data that I, that I do have. It's the, it's the creeping death, Richard, uh, that, that has been coming for years now with all these tools. This is why I wonder if, people like you and I would even be able to sell anymore because I spend fucking half my day inputting shit into all these tools rather than actually talking, talking to people. Right. Yeah. So they're trying to eliminate this creeping death and, and time suck. That's the pain. I, I call it field creep. Yes, I agree. And now it's tool creep. It's creep field death. creep. It's tool creep. It is process creep. That's a whole nother one as you know, sales organizations we, we work with are trying to become more, process driven, you know, implementing different, different methodologies or data driven. And, and here's the reality, you know, one thing I hear a lot about from folks that I don't think have a lot of experience in, in the sales tech space or building for sales, they're like, oh, salespeople are lazy. They don't want to enter stuff. I'm like, no, that's, that's not true. They are entering this information. They're actually, this data exists. It's just in Evernote or it's in Mac notes, or it's in a Google spreadsheet that's not getting its way to Salesforce. And so really, I, I think Richard, what we're doing is just we're reducing complexity. We're trying to simplify things so that instead of having to work out of a system that's disconnected from your database, we just rebuilt it so that you only enter it once. And then, you know, if you're my manager, you would see all that information, but that's, that's really it. So when did you decide to be an entrepreneur? Cause I've known you for many years as well. Yeah. Um, and you've been at a couple of different startups along the way. That's sort of where we first met. Um, when, where did the entrepreneurial spirit come from? Wow. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know if it was ever a deliberate decision, to be honest, like where I woke up one day and was like, you know what, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I, I think a big part of it ties into my, I guess my overall background. I, you know, I was, I was born in Iran, immigrated over to the U S when in the mid eighties, I was I don't know, probably like six years old or so. And we showed up here. It was me, my brother, younger brother, and uh, my two my parents. And we had you know two suitcases. I think my parents had a couple hundred bucks. They were both you know engineers in Iran. My dad a very prominent one, but coming over here, you had to start from scratch. So he started washing dishes in the back of an Irish bar, 
restaurant and then delivering pizzas for Domino's and worked his way up and, and we ended up buying a Domino's pizza franchise. So I started working there since I was nine years old. And I think it really, I think I, if I trace it back far enough, it really started through that experience of having a small business that I was involved in with my family. And, you know, sure, we weren't building tech or, or creating anything crazy new there, but I think the idea of, of building something, of creating something and, and something as, as, I guess, as common as pizza taught me so much about the experience that you can give, where you can differentiate on experience. And sure, you can differentiate on the quality of the product itself, but I think that's what instilled in me this, this desire to want to create and, and build something that, uh, that honestly still carries through to today. What, so nine years old, you're working at Domino's, right? Yeah. What, like, what were you doing at Domino's? Because clearly you weren't um, you know, delivering at that point. No, no, I wasn't delivering, but I was making pizzas, yeah. right? Like we had, we are one of the, one of the first stores we bought went, went through a rough patch and it got to this point where we couldn't really afford having, you know, and as a family business, you can, you can do these things. But, you know, I remember out of elementary school, we would, on Fridays, we would go drive down to where the store was because it was a, it was, this was in, in Minnesota. And so it was a good hour away from the Twin Cities where we lived. And, you know, we just spend the entire weekend there. And I would be making pizzas along with my brother and my mom, my dad would be delivering and we're just trying to make things work. And, you know, unfortunately that first experience didn't end too well. Um, the market just wasn't big enough in that space and competition to come in. Like I'm, I'm going way back now, but like Pizza Hut just started delivering. And so like there was this real crazy rivalry between the two. Uh, but then we ended up getting a second store later on and we turned that around from probably going almost bankrupt to one of the top performing stores in the United States. And so I was probably, you know, I was in high school at that time. So what do you think that was? So identify that from going, you know, from, from worst to first. Yeah. What do you know, uh, remembering about that in terms of a business process, things sounds like you sort of had to break some things to fix them. Yeah. You know, what, what do you remember about that? Yeah. So listen, I can't take any credit for this stuff. What did I know? I was some teenager. Yeah. Got to to see my, yeah, yeah I got to got see to it. So that's it. my point. I, and I, so I, I give all of this credit to, uh, to my dad, who I learned just a ton from, you know, it's funny applying that to, to the, to the kind of the tech business world now, but from, you know, running a pizza franchise, but it came back to first principles and it, it basically came back to, I didn't know it then, but I, 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 I apply this framework to it. Now the jobs to be done framework. Um, that was developed by Clay Christensen. And what, what I think my dad really understood and we learned a lot from was the job to be done for somebody ordering a pizza isn't just that you want to feed yourself. But for a lot of folks, it could be, you know, you have a family and you just don't have the time to cook or you're just exceptionally, you're, you're tired, you come home and like you want, you need to feed your family. That's the job. And so when you look at it through that lens, the entire experience mattered. And so I remember we used to obsess over how you pick up the phone, how you, the tone of the voice that you respond, how you, how you, you know, the, the script that you use to talk to folks, to um, setting expectations with people. Uh, if you're exceptionally busy saying, Hey, you know what, it, this might take a little bit longer. You know, a lot of the stuff that's automated through, through tech now, um, everything from that to there'd be times where we wouldn't let, uh, you know, if somebody's uniform didn't look proper, we'd say, Hey, like we've got extra uniforms in the back, make sure it's, it's it looks nice. And, when you go there, making sure that the lights on the car are turned on at the top that, you know, again, I could go on for hours on this, but really thinking through the entire experience from the initial call to 
the post and calling and getting feedback. Hey, how was your experience? Um, and that's just stuff that a lot of folks weren't doing back then. And I'd say probably even now, maybe a lot of folks aren't, but just obsessed over that, that entire experience. And I think that's what then created a culture inside this quote unquote pizza shop too, where we would, you know, if a pizza came out of the oven and didn't quite meet our standards, we would just show everyone and then put it to the side and say, we're not letting this go out of our store. Let's redo it. And here's why we're, we're redoing it. Um, but I think it's all of those things that added up to, to just create a much better experience and ultimately a better business. You're, you're on your fourth startup, I believe, that you've uh, co-founder or, or founder. Yeah. Is that right? Four now? Um, I, listen, some of them, I don't know if I would call startups or more projects that probably should have never been startups, but, uh, but yeah, call really it. good ideas on paper. Yeah. Four really good ideas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it, uh, is it harder now to start a company and, and try to build something to, to scale than it, than it was when you first started? Um, what's the landscape like, you know, in, in, in your opinion? Boy, that's a tough question. I, I'll say, I'll, I'll answer it, Scott, from my perspective, again, with the caveat that my experience has primarily been in B2B SaaS applications. So by no means would I want to speak to, let's say, hardware or healthcare or, or anything like that. But I think it has become, you know, my direct experience is that getting a product out the door in a lot of ways has become easier. Right. I and agree if, with that. Yeah. So, uh, you, you, know, you know, we can go into all the myriad of reasons why. I would say standing out, getting traction is actually become significantly harder. Yeah. And, 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 and I'll why, sum it up with that. And why, why is that? Is there, is there, uh, how do I phrase this? Is there not much like greenfield left for anybody to find? So there's competition for every little tiny, you know, sliver of, of, of something new. Is it just because there are so many companies and so many marketing and sales messages flying around that it's just so noisy. And so you've got to, you know, stand out in your, in your relationships or your, or your messaging elaborate a little bit. I think, listen, I, I'm in some ways I'm the eternal optimist and you, you kind of have to be, if you want to be a founder. Uh, so, so I have to believe that there's just there's still a tremendous amount of greenfield, but I think standing out, so let's flip that for a second and look at it through the lens of the buyer, the customer, the user, right? Through their lens, it's become exceptionally difficult to differentiate. What's what? Who's who? Everyone's claiming to do the same thing. So I would say that it's less on like, oh, are there enough channels to differentiate from? But it's, it's, there's just so many people out by people, so many companies, organizations out there claiming to do the same things that... I think standing out in a meaningful way, in a differentiated way, that's become harder. Yeah. yeah. But do you also just think too, there's just more tech? Like you're just, yeah. you're just creating for my, you're, you're battling for just getting their attention span, yep. right? Like the tech is way better, right? And in some cases you have competitors, in some cases you don't, or even if you only have one or two competitors, like that's a, that's a golden place to be, right? You're, it's harder to be commoditized. But I think you're just trying to fight for mind share of time to your point, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of my, one of my favorite books on, on this is uh, it's an old school one, Ogilvy on advertising. And it's interesting. If you go back and read that, none of these tech you know, channels, 
digital channels existed back then. And even then they were talking about just how noisy things are and how difficult it is to get mindshare. Wow. They're talking about it back then and, and how important having, you know, understanding who you're serving, why they should care, how you're going to get to, how you're going to say a message that, that's going to really resonate with them. And you fast forward to now when everyone's just being bombarded across every single channel and there are more channels that have, that have existed. So I think that's what's become so is that, even harder. Is that just like every generation sort of saying that they've got it the hardest? It could be. I, I mean, listen, 10 years from now, I have, I have no idea what it's going to look like. But I think the regardless of how technology evolves or what channels exist, I think the one thing will stay constant is even if you're in B2B, you're still selling to people. And people for the most part, operate the same way. And so how do you identify the people that you're serving? Like the, how, what, what problem are you solving in the first place for who? And then how do you communicate, you know, get a message across that resonates with them? And, and I think that's substantial enough for them to care about. I was having a conversation with someone the other day, and I'm curious to your opinion on this. And they were talking about bringing in marketing and that if they were going to start bringing in marketing now, they'd almost bring in someone from an e-commerce play because the buying is such a personalized level that e-commerce could really understand and dissect mm -hmm. the, you know, the account-based model, right? Each title, each role. And they're sort of already thinking that way. Like they think about, they think in demographics more so than they do the brand. And I just found it a, an interesting thought. Has that ever come up as a conversation for you? And if not, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, we, it, it certainly has. I don't know if it's specific to e-commerce, but I think understanding the, understanding that what I would call traditional B2B marketing, I guess, listen, that, that still works for certain industries, but I think specific to what we're doing, which is much more of a bottom up play in the in this world it does look a lot more like consumer type marketing now whether it's e e-commerce that you learn from or direct to consumer it's just different you're not selling now again it pre presents its whole challenges and i, and I don't want to imply that they're mutually exclusive because there are certain points where it might look more like traditional b2b when you're actually getting into the sales process but yeah i think extending beyond the bounds and just saying well we're a b2b company so we should follow traditional b2b marketing plays yeah, yeah, I completely agree that if you take those walls down and open yourself up to saying, hey, like maybe learning from e-commerce might help. Yeah, absolutely. There it is, Scott. There it is, buddy. Go for it. Call me out. <laughs> nice work. <laughs> uh, so I want to I ask you this question. This is totally off topic. You know, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile. Um, you're one of the friendliest people who went to Harvard Business School I've ever talked to um, over the years, right? <laughs> I'm not getting the Harvard attitude. But you were you were there early. You were there in 2005. Yeah. Is is, is Zuckerberg on your speed dial? That was that was when he was building it. Did you? Were, when did you join Facebook? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. No. I, maybe I, I joked that maybe maybe they made a mistake when uh, when they were going through the application process and and let, let me in. Um, no, it was interesting. So I think. So he was in the undergrad. I actually, so I went there, I went to the University of Minnesota for my undergrad, studied engineering, and then went to, um, went to Harvard for grad school, for, for business school. And it was like Facebook was just taking off. I remember in, 
you know, it was like between first and second year and everyone was kind of like, what is, what is this thing? Should we join it? Should we not? Uh, it seems a little, yeah. Uh, and, and obviously look at where it's at now. And um, yeah. <laughs> Interesting to look back on. Did it take you a while to, to decide? Like, I'm just curious. Like, I don't get to talk to anybody who's had it. You know, I think I got it in 2006, 2007, maybe whenever. What user number were you? That's what Richard wants to know. Yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I was that early on, onto that onto that uh, that boat, to be honest. Um, and I think again, it probably spread more through the through the undergrad than it did eventually getting to uh, to the grad school. But yeah, I, I think I was yeah. Well, I was not not that early to get onto it. All right. Well, that, wah, wah, wah. All right. Sorry, didn't mean to disappoint. <laughs> That's kind of a letdown, Richard. Yeah, oh, I know. Make something up <laughs> next time, buddy. Come on. I will. I will. So, um, so talk about what's it like to go from ideation mm -hmm. to MVP to the next level? Like, what is that process like in your mind? At least for you, you've done it several times now, right? And to some extent that's almost like what happened at Domino's. I mean, you had the product, but you had to go through a whole re-ideation of it at those stores. Yeah. Yeah, we just had a lot more constraints because when you're part of a franchise, like there's only so much you you're allowed can, to do. Yeah. You can modify, but listen, I think constraints can be, can actually be incredibly powerful. Um, so going from ideation to MVP to, you know, actually like putting your time and resource into stuff, Gosh, I, I, I wish we knew the lessons back when my co-founder Sirius and I started working together almost a, what, nine years ago now, because what we did early on in the ideation phase, you know, you kind of go through this emotional roller coaster where you get this idea and you're like, oh my gosh, this is it. Like, this is it. We are going to make it with this. And you're on this high. And that usually, you know, again, it, it can last anywhere from a day to maybe a few weeks depends but the dangerous part there is making sure you don't go too far with it just when you're on that high of the initial idea and i think we did that early on where we would quickly jump from that idea to yo we could like build this piece out wouldn't this be cool and wouldn't that be cool and and let me just fast forward to what we what we're doing today because we made a lot of mistakes and those mistakes came from just losing time like we spent nine months on our first idea when we literally should have spent weeks at most and so that's time we'll never get back. So what, so what just, do you, what are the, what are the mistakes specifically aside from time? Like what distracted yeah. time wise? So the, the thing that matters the most um, to me, at least what I have learned is to know what signal you're looking for before you start building anything. And what I mean by that is that that actually requires a really good understanding of the problem you're trying to solve, who you're solving it for and how you're going to be different than anything else that's out there. And if you know, if you, so if you do that work, and again, you're not going to, the goal here isn't to like write some research paper on it or some, you know, McKinsey or Bain style uh, deck that's just got all the details, but it's, do you have enough of an outline to say, hey, we're solving this problem for these people. And this is why they're going to care. This is why they'll choose us over anyone else. The why will win piece. And if you have that, then that can help you identify what's the signal you're looking for. And in some cases it's revenue. Do we get to revenue really quickly? Because other people aren't making money here. In other cases, it's, are we getting downloads and signups? In other cases, it's, you know, for, for Scratchpad, for us, it was simply adoption and retention because we saw there's a graveyard of sales tools that have been built that are roughly doing similar things. No, all of them got to that point because they never 
crack the adoption nut. They never got folks to just pick it up, start using it and absolutely love it and stick with it. So we looked for that signal and then we worked backwards to say, what is it that we need to either communicate or to build to give us the highest quality signal around that? And I wish we had known that earlier on because with other products that we had built over the years, we kind of were just doing the more like lean startup, iterative, keep building MVPs. And you'll get, the, the problem is you always get signals. You just don't know what the right one is and what to listen to. And so I mean, you justify what, it. What's, what are the clues that you look for now to, to, to know whether you're paying attention to the right thing or not? Yeah, well, I, I guess if, if, if I were to give advice to, to folks that are listening that are thinking about doing something or what to look for, I'd say, again, understand how what you're doing or one, the key thing is to understand what problem you're solving and for who. And really, is that a meaningful enough problem in the first place? You don't need to build anything for that. That's just asking questions, spending time, building empathy. And, and, I, and I think people overemphasize building in the early days and will jump before really getting a good understanding of the stuff. Then once you have that, you should be able to form an opinion or have a unique angle or, you know, the, the, the quote unquote insight as people call it. Why are you different? And it could be on many different dimensions, but your signal should be related to that why. And so, you know, I'll bring it back to, to what we're doing at Scratchpad. For us, it's like we said, you know, we're not doing anything radically new. People are still doing tasks and pipe management and notes and all this other stuff. But the key signal for us is just, are they going to use scratch instead of using what they're already used to so it should be usage it should be retention yeah. and for another business or another product it could be something different is there ever a moment where you you ship the product and you're not terrified or scared or just like a little bit embarrassed are you all are you always <laughs> just like God, this is like always yeah do you ever do you ever move beyond that that phase to where you're, where you're like supremely confident, like this is kick ass, like I'm, you know, can't wait to get this out. I, you know, you always hear about the, I always hear these stories. It's like, you know, if you're not embarrassed of your first V1 that you put out of your product, then you know you waited too long or something like that. Um, I'm just curious if that, that there's a ever goes. No, away. there's truth. There, no, I don't think it does. There's a lot of truth to that, but I would actually say. If you ever are overly confident, then you've, you've one, not only waited too far, but two, you may be like, that's a dangerous zone to be in. Because what you're doing then is you're making lots of assumptions that like what you've done is actually the right thing without, and may, maybe it really is like if you've actually already done the ton of the research and you know, and like you've got the quality signal back. But I think what we just learned is there's so much we don't know. And so many of the good ideas that we had that we thought were killer, got out there and just completely fell flat on their face. And so I think it's having this, this humility saying, you know what, we don't know, let's do the best that we can and hear from the market, hear from the users and just iterate as fast as we possibly can. So then how much needs to be in the MVP then? Ooh, um, <laughs> this is a great question, Richard, because I think some people have pretty strong opinions on this. I, I would say this, it needs to be, it needs to be enough such that you get the differentiated signal. And what I mean by that is I've seen some, I've seen some startups and some products put something out that's an MVP and they'd be like, ah, oh, it didn't work. We didn't get the signal back or like it didn't get adopted. And they're like, well, if you look at this compared to everything else out there, you didn't even cross the bar. Yeah. What is, 
what does it mean though when you're looking for the signal? Like what what's yeah. the signal? Is it the retention piece? Is it the adoption piece? What are, what are the and, and maybe it's different for each thing. You know, Scratchpad could have been different for Stack Mob versus you know yeah. other things you've done. What what just to share yeah. that with people? So let me yeah. So let me let me share this. Like with when we started Persist IQ, which was a sales what's now known as sales engagement back then, like you know, sales loft was, was scraping LinkedIn outreach. We didn't even know of, like it was that early. Most investors were telling us, ah, this isn't even going to be a thing. Marketo is going to do this or so will Salesforce. You fast forward and, you know, have several multi-billion dollar companies, which is pretty incredible. And back then, I think the signal for us was revenue. Can we get people to even pay for this thing? It wasn't necessarily adoption or usage because it was something so new. With Scratchpad is completely different because we know that folks are like, we just went on the belief knowing in the space that there is budget there. The hardest piece though is, can you get people to use your product? And so that's why for this one, instead of revenue early on, we went for, for um, usage, like adoption but, and, and, and retention. So, but knowing that now, like if you could, you know, take what you know now and go back to persist IQ, would it still, would it have still been revenue or would it have been, you know, usage and retention? Because that would drive the revenue, right? Like in not, a logical. Not necessarily. I, I think I would still I would still shoot for revenue in the early persist IQ days because it was something so new that you didn't know. Like, were people willing to spend money on something like this outside of marketing automation, outside right. of the, the CRM that they purchased? So Scott, that you, was a huge you went unknown. through this, Scott, with with Qualia a little bit. Um, you know, it was so revolutionary, right? Um, what did you look for those kinds of signal? I mean, and you were there to like help build this thing from, you know, almost day one. Well, so. it's interesting that, I mean, they spent almost two years working on the product without going after revenue at all. So, but was it an MVP model? Was it giving it out or were they, no, they were literally tinkering for two years. Tinkering like, super complicated, you know, piece of software, super complicated industry. Um, just learn, I mean, to Puyon's point though, like lots of conversations interacting with people who would be users. So there, so there wasn't assumptive building happening. It was like, you know, um, but they weren't really giving away the, the product. It was just like dialogue with people from the industry. What would you need? What do you want? Does it need to do this? How would you use software in this circumstance, things like that. Um, yeah. So it was almost, they had been working on it for almost two years by the time I got there and yeah, we went after revenue. And, and Richard, to answer your question before, like what's enough for an MVP, I, you know, I'll be for anyone that's, that's listening, I, I would caution you against listening or kind of any advice that's blanket and really focus on what you're building and why it's different. Cause if you look at a few examples, um, we can let's let maybe look at superhuman as one, the email client, and then let's say some, some enterprise applications. If you're going straight for an enterprise play, you're, it might require you two years of building just to get the MVP. You may have to have all of the checkboxes that everything else needs or that, that they require, go through security, go through all of these things just to be able to prove that you have something different. Now you may get some signal early on, like without actually building the product, like is, is there a need here? Would they spend money on it? But to actually get to the MVP, which is a product that's usable, that's delivering some value, it may require you that much runway. Now, let's, if you shift and, and look at something that's not enterprise, and again, I, I don't know the, the superhuman story all that well, apart from being a user. I mean, love the product, use it actively, 
But if I were to do something like that, let's say to try to come up with the next iteration of it, it would again require lots of building and design up front because they've set such a high bar that if you need to differentiate from it, you have to at least meet some of that bar and then be somewhat, somewhat different versus, you know, if you have something where like, you can't even send email yet, but maybe you differentiate in a different way, that's not, that's not enough to get the signal. So I think it, it really starts with spending upfront time really thinking about what it is you're trying to do versus just throwing spaghetti at the wall. Yeah, I got, I got one more yeah. question for you. And it was interesting. Someone asked me this question the other day and I was like, really? Like I learned this like eight years ago and it has to do with the free trial. Someone asked me, hey, do you think free trials convert better than non-free trials? Oh boy, this could have been a whole podcast in and of itself. And, and I was like, really like and and their and their solution was pretty simple it wasn't you know it wasn't something that required a lot of you know hipaa regulations and you know security stuff and i was like yeah I, I think they do and if they can't convert then you've got a bigger problem right if you know either it's a sales problem or or it's a product problem or something like that here i know you have a free trial on scratchpad but what are your thoughts and would you ever build a product where you couldn't do something free trial so, huh. Okay. Great question. Let me, I guess, let me share the, cause we're still pretty early in scratch. God, I just want Love. you to know, Scott, that's three to zero. Three times he said, I've asked a great question. <laughs> zero. Yeah, I know. That's no, Richard, cause you're asking all these questions. Like, man, these, like we could spend hours just on, just on this. The, listen, the reality is it depends. It depends. Like one of the things that I feel like I wish someone would have told me earlier in you know, me and my co-founders journey and like building stuff and trying to bring it to market is how important alignment is. And what I mean by that is alignment of your product to your go-to-market motions, to your messaging, all of that stuff where these things aren't done in silos. Like you're not just building this thing and then saying, all right, well, let me just figure out how to sell it now, or let me just figure out how to market it. Now, maybe again, I, I may be overly biased in working on like B2B SaaS where they're like end user connected, but I think that's something that has that I've certainly learned a lot um, and how important that is. It, it persists, we, we tried, we tried uh, all of these different iterations and we actually found that a shorter free trial worked better. Mm. And at Scratchpad, believe it or not, we actually don't have free trials. This is a freemium model. Like you can sign up, start using the product for as long as you like. There is no end date to the trial. Now there are some gates or caps on the free version but it's much more of the freemium model than it is the free trial version model. And, and again, we're still learning so much about this and just making sure that it's aligned with our business. Maybe this changes, maybe it doesn't, but, but I think it's that alignment piece that matters a lot. So how do you like the freemium versus free trial? Uh, it's just, it's so different. <laughs> like, because with a free trial, it's actually easier to sell it's a lot easier to sell because there's a discrete moment in time where that thing ends and you have to make a decision. You like selling with the free trial available to you, Richard, if you're the seller or you're the VP of sales? I mean, I would want either one of them. Like if I'm the VP of sales, it would be like a requirement, you know, a short so of, short of so a banking industry kind of thing. That's so interesting because I'm the opposite. I kill all free trials wherever, wherever, wherever I, I go. No free trial, no. But I don't have I don't have a product like Puyon though to, to yeah. his point. Like there is a lot of context there. I'm just I'm just interested to hear Richard say, oh yeah, 
mandatory. I've got to have yeah, a free trial. Yeah. Scott, this is where I call bullshit on Scott Poon. This what is you why you look at him. He's sitting back and he's just watching this debate. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's got a box of popcorn. Scott, you use like this your entire LinkedIn existence, your entire podcast existence, your entire Thursday not sales, Thursday night sales. That's your freemium version, dude. Well, I'm talking about as a VP of sales, Richard, not as me right now. That's that's different. Oh, it's different now. I see. I think it's, it's very different. The, the, the guys at Qualia wanted to do a free trial, and I'm like, no, we don't need to do a free trial. Why? You know? What what was your what's your rationale there? I think that's the interesting question or the interesting answer. Oh, man. It, it complicates the uh, the process, elongates sales cycle. Um, it sometimes creates like a new function where somebody's specific job is to just go after people who've trialed and and uh and not converted um we i just felt no need for it i felt like our the pain we we're solving was so powerful and so obvious that yeah. it should make sense to people and in our particular case this is not a nice to have solution this is like their core solution that they do all of their work in all day long right. so somebody's going to have uh, a piece of software to do this. The question is just which one. So, you know, for me, that was like, okay, that's enough. That's enough. I don't, I don't need a trial. They have to use something. I'm not trying to convince them to do something entirely new that they've never done before. I'm trying to convince them to throw out what they got in 1995 and upgrade it to 2020. Um, and I felt like managing sales reps, if I default my reps to a free trial option, reps will go to the free trial option, right? And I didn't want them to sell from that place. I wanted them to sell from a place of strength and from and, and confidence. And, and if that meant a little more work at the front end selling, uh, then so be it. That was, that's part of my yep. logic. I would, I would agree, Scott, I, I'd agree with that. And, and I, I guess, Richard, I would add this. I, I just view all of these as different tools that you can yeah. use. The, the freemium model, the free trial model, and I think pricing and packaging is, is truly an art. And I think combining, connecting that to your, your go-to-market motion, that needs alignment there. But they're all, I don't think one is better than the other. It really depends. I, I think to Scott's point, if, if you can sell without doing a free trial or freemium, and I, and I do think some people just apply those to like, well, we think we need a free trial. Yeah. But you should be able to ideally like, yeah, can you communicate your value prop and connect it to to a pain that somebody has that's so powerful that they're just like, yeah, of course, like, sure, I'll pay. And then maybe on the flip side, you can say, listen, if you're unhappy, we'll, we'll refund you in the first 30 days or something like that. But um, well, yeah, I just I just really like using the the real estate rebuttal, Richard, which is, you know, sure. I'll, I'll buy the house. Just let me live in it for 30 days. And if I enjoy living in this house, then I'll, then I'll keep it. And then they're like, Oh, that's ridiculous. I'm like, yeah, now you know how I feel. <laughs> let me pivot. Uh, let me pull us out of this and ask you a fun uh, question that maybe no one else will appreciate, but my mother who is sure to listen will definitely appreciate. I want to ask you what you remember most about working with my brother, Taylor. And then, I'm, and then I'm, I'm want Richard, and then I want Richard to pay attention and think, wow, that sounds like Scott, or it doesn't sound like Scott. So, what do you remember most about working with Taylor? So, listen, this has been 
over it's a been decade. What, over a decade now. So this is yep. really stretching. And uh, and I'm coming off, you know, I've got I've got three kids. And so I feel like that alone is like my memory has just kind of gone to complete shit, to be honest. Just say that Taylor's but, completely unmemorable. This is fine. No, I, so I, I, I will no, I will say this though. I I I actually the, we didn't work together all that long, but what I do remember, I was like, man, I would love to work with this guy again. And that, that's what walk, that's what I did walk away from. So I, again, Scott, sorry to disappoint. I know you wanted me to talk some shit here about Taylor, but uh, no, you're actually doing a great job. It's perfect. Okay. No, I, <laughs> All yeah. Scott's going to say to his brother is you weren't very memorable. <laughs> uh, no, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll let him listen. He's like, there's no, not no detail, but a general feeling of, oh, I'd like to work with him again. That's good enough. Yeah. That's, That's good. good. I can say the same thing about Scott. I think people who work with Scott say the same thing. Like, in fact, there's this would be this will be the part Taylor really hates um, is that Scott. I've said this for years. Scott has disciples. Like, people aren't like, "Hey, I'd like to work with Scott again." They're like, "Oh no, no, no! I gotta work for Scott again, right?" But that was also a different relationship. Like, Taylor wasn't necessarily in a management role. I don't think. No, Taylor, it was Taylor's first startup job at the time. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so that's, that might be the only difference I hear, but it's still the same. I think the sentiment is the same in terms of um, those kinds of things. So yeah. that's, that's good. So Pion, I did a, I did a surprise episode um, with Scott's parents and his brother for his birthday last year. I'll have to say. Oh, it. nice. Um, and Scott, he's smirking now, but he, I'm just trying to get some payback still. Yeah, I know. I know. So, uh, but it was, it was a very fun episode because you got to hear about Scott growing up and Taylor growing up and sort of their similar similarities and differences. So, um, you know, now, now you, I can get that to you and you can uh, kind of go, Oh, now I understand why they're both that way. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, awesome. Well, Hey, we got to We got to try to wrap up here. Puyon, we want to thank uh, Salesforce revenue cloud and gong.io and lead411 once again for their support and sponsorship. What can we do for you? Do you have any questions you want to ask us? How can we be helpful to you? No, I, I appreciate it. I, um, you know, I'll probably be following up with a lot more questions, but I would say, you know, one, one of the biggest things that's top of mind for me is, is recognizing that even though we've come so far, both, you know, as, as a company with Scratchpad, we're getting a lot of traction. I still, we still approach every day as if it's day one and approaching things as if we, we're learning so much. I would say from both of you would love to hear more around the pain, the challenges that both of you have experienced or come across. Um, Cause I think, you know, as, as crazy crowded and noisy there are with solutions in the sales tech space, there's still a lot of greenfield and still a lot of problems to be solved. And so uh, just, just hearing your perspectives on that, I think would, uh, would be incredibly helpful. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll tell a real quick story and then I'll hand it over to Richard. Um, the, what did we call it, Richard? What did you call it, field creep? All I can think of is creeping death. All I can think of is Metallica in my head right now. And it just, it has everything to do with all of the, the inputting of data and the manual labor that sellers are having to do. My story is, I'd have people on my team who'd get so far behind with this stuff, Leon, mm -hmm. that, uh, Jean Marie, who, who was working with me as a head of uh, sales, sales ops, we came up with this thing called the data dungeon. And, and people had to have a 90% or higher like health score of their accounts and all the information in there. 
And if, and if they couldn't maintain it on their own, we would pull them off the floor and send them into the conference room. And as a group, they would have to spend two, three hour blocks of time to update and enter all this kind of stuff. And, and it became like kind of a fun, funny thing, but like people didn't want to end up in the data dungeon. Like this, my point is this is the lengths that heads of sales, VPs of sales have been having to go to, right? Yeah. So that pain that you're talking about and, and solving right now with Scratchpad um, is very, rare, very, very real. Richard? So I would, I would say the next step is taking that data and then telling you what to do. There's nothing worse than having to spend hours building a report or dashboard and by the time, or an Excel sheet or whatever, and then going, okay, well now what does this data tell me? Right. And I think if you have a strong sales ops person, you know, you have that, but if you don't have sales ops yet, that's really hard. And even then, if you had sales ops, how much better could that sales ops be right where they're not sending there's, you know, I'm sure there are other things you can get sales ops to do if that report is being done and now they can help find those insights. Right. So yeah. sort of taking it and being more predictable, almost similar, but not the same as, you know, forecasting revenue, right? Like I, I want to know it from like a tactical perspective. Here's what we should be focusing on. And I think Gong and Chorus are going to approach that and sort of to your point, what Scratchpad can do and in integrating all these different, look, you know, the communications, they're all, they're all in different silos, right? There's yeah. email, there's text, there's phone call, there's voicemail, there's Slack, there's Chorus, there's, you know, it's all in different places. And how do you get it somewhere that's also concise and sort of give you the two sentence overview of all this and then also to have it tell you what to do. So go MVP that shit. <laughs> all right. We may have to get some, get some insights there. Uh, that might be scratch pad 2.0. Might be, might be. I, although I think for, for the foreseeable future, we, you know, I, I think AEs have, have kind of not gotten a lot of love um, to be honest. And I think we're, we're staying a little pretty focused on that for now. Um, but that's yeah, that's that's some good insight there to dig into. Maybe for 3.0. I mean, I don't. I'll ask. I'll ask you, Scott. Would that be helpful or no? You're you use this stuff more than I would. Would you like the reports to tell you what you you know? These are your three options. Then you can spend time thinking about the options versus trying to figure out what they are. Well, you got to be honest with you. The reason I hire somebody like JM is so she can present me with what to do. So she she can grab those insights. So that's that's how I use my head of RevOps or head of sales ops so i can look at the report but to your point i don't want to have to like figure out what to do with it if i can have somebody bring me that information i'm in, i'm in good shape you know i don't have time to look at all these reports all day long i'm not the vp of spreadsheets right that's not that's not who i am i'm not that v, that vp of sales I mean, so, but, but you need this for jm let's say you had this for jm i know we've got to wrap up but if you had this available for JM, would you still have other things you could have her do? Oh, hundred percent. And she would probably, and she would probably love it. She would love to not have to like think she would love to have the report. Just tell her you should do these things because of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think all, but all of that is based on, and listen, this is nothing new, but garbage in garbage out or not enough in it. And so to make better decisions, you need that data there in the first place. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that companies have done around auto data capture, calendars, emails, you know, all this stuff. And, and really what we're going after is think of it as that 
the rich contextual data that is just not making its way in. But who is the champion at the organization? And yeah, maybe the number of emails exchanged can give you some insight, but the salesperson who's talking there knows the ins and outs will have them or yeah. what's the compelling reason. And so it's really capturing this data so that folks like Scott could be making better decisions at the leadership level because that data is actually in the reports. Cool. Cool. Awesome, man. Well, this has been a, like, we could have dove into like four other topics for at least another hour. Maybe we should go to Clubhouse and c carry on the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> John, do you need an invite to Clubhouse? I'm happy to get you on. Scott. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I did a, did a session with, with a couple of YC founders on sales before. Um, so yeah, I'd be down anytime you guys want. We can talk more about lessons awesome, learned. Catch you later. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks guys. Thanks for coming on. Bye-bye.